It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is uh, a message that I'm going to uh, dedicate to one of our students in here, uh, which is pretty exciting, and uh, that's, that's going to be uh, Poncho Dyke. He is, I'm going to dedicate this to him, and you'll understand why uh, when I uh, give you the title. Uh, part 26, The Rise of Poncho. <laughs> so we have been, now, if you've been missing portions of the World War I series, then this could be a little confusing at first, because we're going to go into the wild, wild west. And when you think of America and you think of Mexico, you don't usually think of World War I, uh, especially in the European landscape and Germany attacks you know, France and then France retaliates, Russia hits Germany from the east, Great Britain gets involved, brings over Indian troops, Canadian troops, uh, 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 Australian, New Zealand you know, start attacking in Gallipoli. You know, all these things that are sort of classically understood World War I pictures in our mind. Now, most of us know that America does get involved in the war, but not yet. In fact, they're very, very slow to get involved, and there's multiple reasons for that. When the war starts, there is hardly an American that is interested in participating in what's going on over there, and that's long-held American foreign policy. George Washington, in his farewell speech, is going to actually encourage America not to slay monsters uh, over yonder, to not go and fight someone else's wars, but to make sure that we maintain the integrity of this nation, we stay focused here. And whereas that sounds really good, you know, as a Christian, it's an interesting tension to sort of say, how should we use our strength? When God blesses us with strength, should we just keep it for ourselves, or should we splurge and risk giving it to others. Very fascinating thing to sort of just recognize American foreign policy up to this point. It's like, is that the right foreign policy to have? It's, it's also a political thing that we deal with. And you see the liberals always sort of wanting to give away America, and the conservatives are like, hey, let's take care of our own first. They both have a truth to them. Because, for instance, as a, as a husband, as a, as a father, I'm no better than an infidel if I don't ca- take care of my own. Right? If I don't care for, if I don't provide for my own family, well, what have I done? And so if I give away the food that is meant for my own house table to someone else, you could say, what a loving man that is. But in actuality, I may not be loving if I'm not taking care of my wife and my kids first. So you can sort of see it from both ways. The conservative has a tendency to emphasize that. The liberal has a tendency to grab the food on the table and, and throw it, you know, and say, hey, you take this. It's better that you eat it than we eat it. And actually, you can sort of see a nobility in either perspective, depending on how you wear the glasses, right? And so American foreign policy in this time is we don't slay monsters over yonder. No, that has nothing to do with us. And there is hardly an American. I mean, there are some that are just sort of like, hey, let us get into this. You know, we want to rumble. However, almost everyone is like, no way, we have nothing to do with this. And this is a very, very important uh, time in history because the way America goes is ultimately going to define this war. And there are multiple people that know that. Uh, Great Britain really wants America to wake up. And the same thing that's gonna happen in World War II. World War II, America's in the Great Depression and we're like lost in our own stuff over here, 
And Winston Churchill's just begging God that somehow, some way, America will get out of their stupor and realize that we have some needs over here. And so when uh, Pearl Harbor is bombed, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, when that happens, Winston Churchill sleeps like a baby that night. Because that's what he wanted. He wanted the sleeping giant to awaken. And that's what changes all of World War II. Well, World War I is hanging in the balance, and it's a stalemate, and they can't seem to break through. The Germans don't have the strength to break through that Western front, and the Allies don't have the, the strength. Great Britain can't seem to muster it. France can't seem to muster it. I mean, they have unlimited resources because they have all these Commonwealth nations. Canada's coming. Uh, Australia, New Zealand's coming. India's coming. You've got all sorts of other nations that are participating in this, and so Germany has Germany. And so they're running lower and lower on fuel, but they're one tough cookie, and Germany does not break easily. And so this is going on for years. Now, the, the time period we're in right now is going to be a little vague, because we're going to hang out in a little 1916. We were in 1914 and 1915 last time we were talking. This is sort of the middle zone of the war, and I'm going to try and do it as chronologically as I can. But when I'm dealing with America, I'm sort of going to flirt with different dates in there because I'm trying to fill in a storyline. And that is the American side of it and why we are not getting involved, what our thinking is. And it's very interesting how it parallels our thinking of why we don't involve ourselves in maybe the issues that God is asking us to be involved in. Like, for instance, if I set out the issue of foreign missions... If I set out the issue of like abortion or something, almost all of us have reasons why we don't get involved. And some of them are right. In other words, it's obedience that matters. It's not just like every single one of us is supposed to be on the foreign mission field right now and I'm going to rebuke you because you're not this morning. That's an incorrect approach as well. However, there's sometimes something that God is doing to stir us, to move us, and we come up with a, a lot of reasons why we shouldn't be doing it. It's very clear right now that America should be, right around 1916, that they should be getting involved in this war. There are multiple violations the Germans have brought. I mean, not just sinking the Lusitania as we talked on Monday, but there are a lot of things happening that Washington, speaking of the government in America, is doing their best to cover up. Because if the public knew about it, they would say, we want to go to war. And the current president of the United States does not want to go to war. His name is Woodrow Wilson. And here's the interesting thing. He's a pacifist. Isn't that an ir ironic thing? That the president at the time of World War I is a pacifist. He doesn't want war. He doesn't believe in war. He, he, he believes in diplomacy. He believes we can talk all these things out. And it's a good quality. I think that's wonderful. And yet, what a unique tension we have uh, in the United States of America at this time. So the rise of Poncho, I don't know how Poncho feels about it. It's sort of fun having a Poncho in, in our training, don't you think, guys? Having a Poncho in the room when I start talking about Poncho Villa, who isn't the most attractive character in history, by the way. Uh, so this is part 26, the rise of Poncho. So this is sort of fun. I was thinking about how, what voice I could use for this. It's like previously on Daily Thunder. Uh, you see, we have, we've, we've gone twice back into the Wild West, and which feels very odd when you're going through World War I to go back to 
these skirmishes on the Mexican border, you know, Huerta, the president of Mexico, and how he assassinated Madero, and all these things are like, huh? Most of us, even in America, don't really know much about what was going on in America at this time, which is interesting. We know that we were like heroic in World War I, or at least we have a, the gist of that that floats around in the air. But we don't realize how distracted we were. And we were distracted because there was a distractor working hard to make sure we were distracted. God is a calling on your life, and there is a distractor that is laboring long and hard to make sure you don't fulfill your calling, to make sure that you are distracted with skirmishes along your Mexican border so that you do not fulfill your purpose in this world. So that's just a little premise point that you need to hold on to previously on Daily Thunder. So we had a message called the meddling of William. William, Wilhelm II, uh, the emperor, the Kaiser, the king character in Germany at this time, is a meddler. That's just what he is. The guy is meddling in the Mexican government, in the, in the Japanese government, in the American government, trying to create war. He wants to bring us into war. Why? So that we're distracted from being a part of the war he's in. He does not want America to use its strength, use its manpower, to use its technological advancements to swing in support of the allies. I don't blame him. It's actually, it actually makes a lot of sense. So if you want to go back, you can listen to the meddling of William, very fascinating message. I mean, all this stuff of what he did. How does this king of a country way over in Europe have the time to deal with all of this? But this is like what he specializes in. He feels like he's really good at this. And I'm not going to take that away from him. I think he is a pretty good meddler. And then uh, the other message was the 21-gun salute, which we were saying may have been the message. Was that the one where I had the mustache? We're not sure if it was. But where there, were, there is a message out there where I did wear a mustache for like the first five minutes of the message. So fascinating piece of trivia. So welcome back to the Wild West. So I'm going to base this message on something we're going to call the principle of enemy resistance. And I'm saying on the screen, take it as a compliment. So this is, I've, I've said this many times. You may have heard me say this before, but it's, it's worthy of being repeated. Everyone in this life has difficulty. Everyone has a certain degree of resistance. In other words, if you go out to plant a garden, every one of us has a certain degree of resistance, that there is this thing called weeds that want to like hinder. Uh, there's rocks in the soil. You know, there, there's just things that we all face commonly because we live in a world of sin where this world is sort of under this curse. And so as a result, we all have to labor to accomplish simple things, things that it's like, hey, in the, in, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, I have a hunch it's going to be a little easier to accomplish certain things, right? But right now we have this problem in our world, and it's common. It's shared amongst us all. However, when you step forward in faith in Jesus, you get bonus problems. You see, everyone has common problems. Everyone has mosquitoes, and everyone has weeds, and you know, everyone has the storm cloud moving in with maybe some hail falling. However, not everyone has the enemy resistance at the level a Christian has. You see, there are two powers. There is a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. 
And when you join the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness is set against you. And its design is to hinder you, is to stop you, is to discourage you. That shouldn't discourage you to hear that, even though it is illuminating, to go, huh. And so as a result, it can be harder for a Christian to accomplish basic things in their life. Now, most people have never heard that, but it actually helps explain a lot. That when you try and move forward in a direction that your neighbor, who is a pagan, who doesn't even care about Jesus, is able to just do it, and you're like, wow, why do I have so much challenge in doing this? It's because a movement forward in agreement with God is a very, very dangerous thing in hell. And as a result, the devil wants to stop you before you get something known as momentum. And the easiest time to stop you is at the beginning of things. So when you first start into things, you are going to have an unusual amount of resistance. That's Christianity 101. It just hasn't been taught very often in the church today. And so as a result, many of us get caught off guard. Now here, let me give you another little lesson. Uh, so you know, everyone has common problems, but then a Christian gets bonus ones. A Christian leader gets bonus bonus. You see, the enemy is going to take his resource and he's going to focus it on the greatest point of threat. And it makes total sense that he would do this, okay? And if you were going to be the tactician, you know, and you had hell's armies and you saw the threat of the kingdom of light, you would think the same way. Why would you waste your resources on something that's not a threat? You're going to consolidate your resources and stick them against the greatest threat. The other thing to note is that the enemy does not have unlimited infinite numbers of troops. Sometimes we think it's just sort of an infinite number of demons out there. He, he received one-third, received, stole might be a better way of saying it, but he has one-third of the angelic host. That means the number is a finite number. It's a divisible number. It's not an infinite number. It's a divisible number. That means you could count them technically, right? And that also means that God has double. The angelic host doubles the demonic host. Isn't that just an amazing thought? Not only that, but it's God leading them. Okay, God by himself is enough to squash all of the third, right? But we have double the angelic host and God, right? So if you're the enemy and you're limited in resource, sort of like the Germans are in this, sorry to always put the Germans in the enemy position in this. It's just, it's hard not to. Now, since I'm German, I can get away with it. Where some of the Germans out there are like, Eric, are you sure you're German? Or are you just leveraging that for your uh, World War I and World War II? Because I did the same in World War II. Uh, but the Germans have limited resource, and so they're going to strategically use their resource to stymie the greatest points of threat. What is the greatest point of threat? Well, <laughs> right now, they see British shipping as if they can stop with their U-boats, the British shipping, they could stall the British Empire and shut it down. They know it. And so their U-boats are going to become one of their strategies, but their other great threat which is a strange one to probably most people if you're just looking at the landscape of World War because you're seeing the war on, on the map, but Germany knows it. It's America. Well, America's not even a part of this. But if they were to be a part of it, we're sunk. We have to make sure America doesn't get in this war. And so when they sink the Lusitania, which is what I mentioned on Monday, it is going to stir the American ire. And you're going to see Americans start to go, hey, hey, what do they think they're doing? 
And so Germany's going to back off from their U-boat use and the submarine use. It's like, woo, we don't want to do that. So the two things that they could do, they want to stop British shipping, you know, to get all their materials from America uh, to fight the war. If they could stop that, it'd be great. But by stopping it, they're awaking America. Uh-oh. So they're going to pull back on that. They're, they do not want to awaken America. So they need to disturb America in a different way. So if you listen to the message called the meddling of William, you'll recognize that what they're trying to do is stir up the Mexicans against the Americans and stir up the, Mex the Americans against the Mexicans. And then they want to inspire the Japanese to consider how they could take this entire area of the Pacific if they were to join with Mexico and attack along the southern borders of America. They could, they could own the Pacific. I mean, what? What is this? What does this have to do with German, in, German interest? I mean, why are you trying to help Japan, who Japan is at this time one of the allies? They are working with Great Britain and France and Russia, and Germany is trying to inspire them to take territory in the Pacific by working with Mexico against America. Why would, he, why would they do that? Well, what is the reason for that? Why would the king of Germany, who has a war of his own in Europe, be spending all this time and energy trying to inspire the Mexicans to hate the Americans and the Americans to hate the Mexicans. Everything was fine until William started meddling. And yet once he started meddling, we started doing the hating. And so all throughout 1914, 1915, 1916, what do you think America's distracted with? Mm-hmm. We're distracted with Mexico. And so these things called the Mexican Revolution and, you know, the Mexican-American border wars, you know, that's all taking place in this time. Why? Because there's a meddler. So Kaiser Wilhelm uh, II, uh, I've been calling him William, so I'll call him William in this message, but it's always fun to say Wilhelm. Uh, it's just, it makes me feel a little more German. Hey, I'm calling him the meddlesome king. So look at him. So the reason you saw, I, I mentioned the mustache wearing, uh, because back in this time, every guy seems to have a really cool mustache. And I mean, this is the age of cool mustaches. Wouldn't it be sort of fun to have the age of cool mustaches come back and we start doing these things? Uh, yeah, that, that'd be, oh, there's some excitement for that in here. Uh, <clears throat> so that's Kaiser Wilhelm. Now, uh, if you want to look back at any of the messages that I've done on Kaiser Wilhelm, he's probably my favorite guy to talk about because he's such a, he's very insecure and he, he's just a sort of a comical character. I don't even know how to describe it. He'll make you mad, but he'll also make you laugh. And so the insecurity of William, uh, the, the inexorable force and the meddling of William are three messages that you can dig into for that. So uh, it's sort of sad that I need to put this scripture up right after bringing up Kaiser Wilhelm. Uh, but the great dragon, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Yep, that's about what's going on here, okay? You have yourself a pawn in the kingdom of darkness and his plan, and he is functioning just like the devil functions. I mean, I feel bad saying that about this poor guy, but that's what he's doing. He's trying to deceive the nations, and he feels very good about his working and his scheming. It's sort of like the giggle giggle thing. He's like, ha ha ha. And that's what he's doing. So uh, the book, The Zimmerman Telegram by Barbara Tuckman, 
So which, uh, the Zimmerman telegram I haven't even gotten to yet. This is going to be in 1917. It's going to be a key turning point of the war, which is one of the reasons I'm building some of the Wild West themes here, and I'm building towards something. I'm building towards something known as the Zimmerman telegram. And it's actually an extremely interesting story. But this book uh, goes into great detail in that. And one of the things Barbara Tuckman says is this, Wilhelm's, or Williams, vigorous imagination envisaged the United States and Japan locked in conflict on a battlefield in Mexico. When he's dreaming at night, he's dreaming of that. Germany had succeeded not only in making Americans believe in the possibility of joint Japanese-Mexican action against the United States, but in making herself believe in it. So the devil is a con, and he's a liar, and he's a deceiver. And so he is going to try and convince you of all sorts of things that aren't true. And Wilhelm, or William, is going to do that to America and to Mexico, but America is going to genuinely believe in all of these lies that uh, William is creating, and it's almost going to create a reality, which is very interesting. See, when you begin to buy into the fact that Mexico is about to attack you, then you start to read into everything that happens. And that's where Pancho Villa is going to come into, uh, because he is going to step into the midst of this consternation that is already there, and he's going to attack America. And he's Mexican. You could just imagine how well that's going to go over in the midst of this tension. Okay, so not only is the United States believing that there really is some kind of antagonism and that Japan's working with Mexico to attack us along our borders. Isn't that weird? That there was, most of our nation was convinced that that was going to happen back in the day. I don't think any of you have ever thought about Japan attacking through Texas. Isn't that just a weird thought? It's like, who would ever think that? Well, most of America thought that back in World War I. But here's the other side of it, but made herself believe in it. See, Germany is actually going to become so convinced in their own lie that they're going to trip along in their own communications, in their own behavior, because they believe in their lie so thoroughly that it's going to actually backfire on them. Now, that's somewhat of a spoiler if you were to look in any deeper than that, but that's what the Zimmerman telegram is. It's the ultimate fumble of the ball. Germany is like running for the end zone, and they're like laughing as they're doing it with the ball, and then they drop the ball, and then they keep running, and then they look back and like, we don't have the ball. <laughs> it's a great moment in history because William looks like he's getting away with it, and he's running down the road, I'm going for a touchdown, and then he drops the ball and keeps running, thinking, and he's doing the victory celebration in the end zone without the ball. It's, it's a good moment. Woodrow Wilson the pacifist president. So here's a picture of Woodrow Wilson, very serious man, very studious. He is, he's the first president that we've had in the United States that was a scholar instead of a politician. And his self-proclaimed reason for actually entering the presidency was to clean up Washington. Okay, I don't know if that sounds familiar. And uh, he is He's a moralist, so he has a very high moral value. He wants to remove alcohol from our country. Uh, he is, uh, he's called the Puritan of the North. That's uh, Huerta, the president of Mexico, calls him the Puritan of the North. And uh, a very interesting character where you're not exactly sure if you like him 
or don't like him. Uh, you know, and that, that's, it's a very interesting tension. And I'm not going to say he's similar to Donald Trump, but a lot of the dynamics that even those that would like him struggle with similar dynamics. Like Donald Trump is a guy who would go to war. Woodrow Wilson is a guy who doesn't want to go to war. They're very different in a lot of their policy. Woodrow Wilson's a Democrat. Uh, Donald Trump was a Republican, right? They're, it's hard to draw a direct comparison, but both of them are going to enter into office to clean up Washington. And they are not going to listen to the establishment, so the establishment could try and put pressure on them, and they're going to walk to the beat of their own drum and really make people mad, okay? So it's hard to actually know if this was a good president or a bad president, because it depends on which history you listen to. It's the same with Donald Trump. Was Donald Trump a good president? Oh, wow. Could you imagine going into Google on that one? Was Donald Trump a good president? That's, that's a debatable point, depending on which glasses you're wearing when you answer the question, right? And similar for me in knowing how to deal with Woodrow Wilson, in certain moments, I'm just like embarrassed by him. I'm like, oh, come on, Woodrow. And then in other moments, I'm actually thinking, I know what makes this guy tick, and I can relate to it. And, you know, I've sort of been called the Puritan of the North at times. You know, I can sort of like this guy. And yet I'm not exactly sure that I want to vote Woodrow Wilson in for a second term. Okay, so just to give you uh, what, what goes on in my mind. The pacifist president. Pancho Villa, the answer to where to corruption, or is he? So the president of Mexico, uh, he's known as Huerta, and he is uh, one bad guy. I mean, he, he assassinated the previous president, Madera, and uh, there is just no positive qualities in this. And Wilson has taken upon himself to eliminate Huerta. He, that's like, he, his, his, again, a self-proclaimed mission not to just clean up Washington, but to clean up Mexico which is what the last message I gave, the 21-gun salute was, it's just sort of embarrassing. It's like, buddy, stay in your own jurisdiction and mind your own business. What are you dealing with Mexico's government for? Let Mexico deal with Mexico, but he's meddling in Mexico's affairs, and it's going to create all sorts of problems, okay? So this is where, at this time in the story, Wilson is going to sort of wake up and realize, wait a minute, Okay, all right, I'm going to acknowledge I shouldn't have meddled there, all right? I, I shouldn't have gotten involved. Now, he's saying this privately to himself, okay, because he's a very proud man. And he's not about to admit that. But he recognizes that he's being played like a fiddle. And there's a country over in Europe that is playing him. And so when he wakes up to realize that William is playing him, he's like, okay, oh, no, I'm not going to fall for this again. I don't know if this sounds like your spiritual life. So Pancho Villa, there he is. You know, you know the reason? Wilson is going to actually help Pancho Villa come to power, a certain degree of power. And he's going to sponsor Pancho Villa because Pancho Villa stands against Huerta and he wants to deal with Huerta. So he wants to create his own contingent there. And he chooses Pancho Villa. You know why? Because he doesn't drink alcohol. Oh, he'll kill everyone he comes in contact with, but he doesn't drink alcohol, and Wilson likes that. <laughs> it's like, uh, buddy, you may want to evaluate Pancho Villa on a few other points. <clears throat> so listen to this. Wilson's new candidate, Pancho Villa, was a swaggering rooster who would far more readily shoot a man in the belly than shake hands with him. So uh, did I mention who I was dedicating this message to? Uh, 
<laughs> so William, when he realizes Poncho is down there, and Poncho is, you know, feeling a little overlooked because Wilson is sort of beginning to step away from him. He's like, I'm not exactly sure if I picked the right guy. See, Wilson has gotten himself in a little too deep here into the Mexican business. And so he's starting to try and pull back. And so William recognizes that he is an ally. He is a guy who lacks any ethics, uh, any, has any character, and is ready to kill anyone that gets in his way. And William's thinking, I like this guy. I can use this guy. So William is going to befriend Pancho Villa, if you could imagine those two hanging out. So I'm going to call this the art of distraction. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, to Germany, Villa now appeared to offer a better prospect than ever of embroiling the United States with Mexico. And the appearance was soon borne out on January 10th, 1916 at Santa Isabel in the province of Chihuahua, a band of Villistas, so these are those that follow uh, Villa, waylaid a train carrying 17 American mining engineers, lined them up, stripped them, and shot them down one after another. One man, Thomas H. Holmes, lay on the ground still breathing. After the bandits rode off, he crawled through the night and stumbled, gasping and bleeding into Chihuahua City at seven next morning with the news of the deaths of all his companions. How do you think this is going to go over in America? 17 American miners are going to be shot down by Pancho Villa. Well, we'll find out, I guess. The massacre at Santa Isabel, as it was immediately labeled, threw the country into an uproar and evoked a thunderous demand for intervention. Angry protest meetings and citizens' petitions shrieked for action to avenge this foul and brutal murder. El Paso, whose citizens went out looking for Mexicans with guns, had to be put under martial law. A volunteer posse of a thousand mining and cattlemen threatened to rush the border, hunt down the bandits, and take vengeance into their own hands unless the army was called out. Congressmen, especially Texans, perorated about murder, rapine, and pillage, about American women outraged, fates worse than death, American lives, and sacred honor. Now, this is not altogether unusual in your soul. The devil gets a whiff of what you're called to and he starts to gain concern. You've given your life to Jesus. You're starting to be awakened by the Holy Spirit. All right, it's time for the Mexican tactic. You see, he wants to create antagonisms in your life, and one of his number one baits for your soul is grievance. It just is. And if he can create a grievance along your southern border so that you don't focus on your calling, he's gotcha. He's playing you like a fiddle. Wilson has already begun to recognize, okay, I'm being played like a fiddle. So he's like in reform mode. He's like, okay, we're going to change this. However, the rest of America is not in reform mode. We're falling for it because this is the only news we have, is that Mexico and Japan are planning to assault us along our border. And look at that. There's proof of it right there. We need to stand up. We need to take our manpower. We need to fight Mexico lest we be overcome. Can we allow this to happen and not say anything? Now, for those of you that think like an American, you can understand what they would be thinking right then. We cannot let this stand. We come from a heritage of cowboys. And so we have a tendency towards vigilante justice anyway, sort of in our nature. And you see that in this. It's like, if you're not going to do anything, government, we'll do something. They form the El Paso Posse. And they're going to deal with this issue. 
and I would almost want to say classic American. However, it's also classic American to allow a grievance to lead you into vigilante justice in the first place. In other words, we're being played. This isn't what we're supposed to be focused on. Via is a puppet in the hand of William II. He's doing this to help William. Are you going to fall for that? Uh, many of us have. When we have a grievance and someone offends us, we can so quickly focus right there, where it becomes the attention of our soul becomes focused, fixated right there. And oftentimes, if you have unforgiveness, it opens a door. Unforgiveness is a door sin. It cracks the door open, and it allows in the trafficking of all sorts of other goods. It's like the devil just wants to, to play you, and he says, okay, can I get that door open? How would I get that door open? Ah, I'll bait you with a grievance. You see, you didn't create the grievance. It wasn't you that came up and decided you're going to come up and just bop someone, in, you know, bop you in the nose. It's not like, hey, could you come over and bop me in the nose? You didn't ask for this. The devil's inspiring someone to come over and bop you in the nose in hopes that you will not respond as Christ has taught you to respond, but that you will respond in the classic human fashion of balling your hand up into a fist and bopping them back. And if we can get that tension going, we've got the skirmish on the Mexican border, and we're a-okay. Woodrow Wilson, home from his honeymoon, barely a week. Welcome to marriage, Woodrow Wilson. I mean, this is intense stuff here. So listen to what it says. Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, home from his honeymoon, barely a week, was not to be moved. Now, what does he know? What, what has he learned over the past couple of years in dealing with Germany and dealing with Mexico. It's like, okay, all right, I'm learning something. I'm, I'm getting wise here. And that is that William wants me to get into this war. So he's not going to be moved. Deep within him was a shame as an American over the first Mexican war, overlaid by the stain of his own foray upon Veracruz, which is a whole story in 21 Gun Salute. Never, he declared to a friend through shut teeth, would he be forced into a war with Mexico that could possibly be avoided. Okay, so he recognizes the play. He recognizes the pull. And through clenched teeth, he's going to declare it. I'm not going that way again. He closed his ears to epithets of cowardice that the nation flung at him and held on tight to the lines of Lansing's memorandum. What was Lansing's memorandum? Listen to this. Germany wants us to go to war with Mexico. Therefore, we must not go to war with Mexico. What we do in Mexico must be governed by the state of our relations with Germany. That is a profound spiritual truth right there. In other words, Lansing's memorandum to us, it's like you do know that the devil wants you to go to war with that person. The devil wants you to break fellowship with the church. The devil wants to cause this in your life. So as a result, you shouldn't allow it to happen. So you need to put up your defenses right there and say no. I'm not falling for your trickery. I'm not falling for your deceptions. I'm not falling for your bait. And so he's holding on to Lansing's memorandum, and he's saying, I cannot go to war with Mexico because that's exactly what Germany wants. A little easier said than done. Villa, remember, remember Pancho Villa? Yeah, I don't know if Pancho remembers Pancho Villa. Do you, do you remember Pancho Villa? Sort of, yeah, I already drawn a blank. Villa, spoiling for a fight with Germany 
whispering encouragement, let me read that again. Via spoiling for a fight with Germany whispering encouragement in his ear, danced up and down the border like an enraged rooster trying to provoke the rush of the large dog. Oh, if you're in Wilson's position, this is really hard because your entire nation is like, we need to take this guy out. Look at him. He's this like proud, arrogant rooster boasting along the border like, you can't touch me, you can't touch me. And what do you want to do? Touch him? It's like, how dare you? I mean, this is, the, this is the dignity of the American nation hanging in the balance. See, this is classic enemy right here. Classic. The tempter is busy at work. Matthew 4, 3. The tempter came to him, speaking of Satan, the devil, coming to Jesus in the wilderness. He said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So if you are really this strong nation with an amazing military, you know, and all your technologies and all your bravado, your John Wayne bravado, well, then come and get me. Come and get me. Cross the border. Come on. Violate our national borders. Come on. I really want to see you do it. It's the tempter. And the way he works isn't always with something attractive. You know, because when we think of temptation, we think of like a, a luscious piece of fruit that would look really good and taste very good and bring solace to us. But sometimes it's the inverse. The solace comes from smacking someone down. And in this situation, it's very effective. So 2 Corinthians 2.11. Now, I am summarizing something because Paul's talking about forgiveness. And so he's going to basically say forgive as the action, and the reason is, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You did read the Lansing Memorandum. We're not ignorant that he wants us to fight that battle of unforgiveness, that he wants us to fall for a grievance, to open up that door, and to allow him in to traffic his goods into our life in and through unforgiveness, resentment, and bitterness. So let's forgive as an offensive maneuver lest we fall for his scheme. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, it's funny, whenever I read that, I always want to say, uh, maybe they weren't in the first century church ignorant of his schemes, of his devices. I think we might be. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure that I can say with confidence we are not ignorant of his devices. Because I do not think that we have been trained and groomed in the art of spiritual warfare where we understand the movements of the en enemy, we've received the Lansing Memorandum, we know the agenda of the enemy, and we know his bait. And so as a result, if you know that that's bait, and you know where you're supposed to focus, and you know his entire goal is to distract, to distract you there, then we say no to the distraction and yes to the calling. But the tension is very, very real. Temptation is a very, very powerful thing. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Isn't that a great word, wiles? I always think of Wiley E. Coyote uh, with his Acme products, you know, to destroy the roadrunner. He's always setting a trap for the roadrunner. That's exactly what the wiles are. He's like the Wiley E. Coyote. He's the meddling William. And so as a result, he will leverage the Pancho Villa to be like an arrogant rooster along the southern borders to mock you, to beg you in. 
He's very good at speaking the language of your natural man, which is why you need to function in accordance with your spiritual man, because your natural man is susceptible, and you must die daily to not allow that to have the upper hand in your decision-making. And as Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's the equivalent of saying our battle is actually not against Pancho Villa. It's against an unseen party over in Europe. You see, the devil wants to get you baited to fight the wrong battle. And that for us is flesh and blood, to make this a human-to-human battle. When in actuality, we got an evil character hanging out in the spiritual realm who is puppeteering these things. And what we need to do is go after him. Pancho Villa is actually not our issue. I know it's really hard as an American and our pride and our dignity is really hard not to just smack him down. But we can't fall for this game. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The enemy desires to devour. We need to be watchful. We need to remember the Lansing Memorandum. We need to have our our senses very acutely honed on the fact that, okay, we need to remember what we're here for, what we're supposed to be doing, what we're supposed to use our resource for. We have limited time on this earth. We have limited resource. We need to actually engage this body, this life, our time, our energies in the right direction. Got one life to live. And the enemy wants us to spoil that life. He wants us to waste that life. He wants us to spend most of our time just dealing with skirmishes and threats along our southern border. You are built for something greater. America is built for something greater in this story. And I mean, it is, it's one of those stories that we really like as Americans. When we, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, the stories of the Americans showing up in World War I on the Western Front. But it's one of those ones that you know, causes your buttons to burst a little if, if you're an American. Now, it could be bigger than life, you know, the, the American propaganda to make us feel good. I, I don't know. But it is pretty cool. Even when you hear the journal entries of, or the letters written home from the other Allied uh, soldiers who had been fighting there for you know, multiple years, four years, and their, their clothes are like bedraggled, covered in mud, and they're faded. You know, they started out as a bright blue and red, if you were French, you know. You had the khaki, you know, for the, the British. And yet they're like worn down, torn, and the Americans show up in their brand new uh, fatigues. And these guys are farm boys. And they come strolling in, and they fear nothing. And I, uh, you know, just even when I heard that, I was like, you know, some of my buttons burst. It's like, ah, ah, go America. And yet, that's not how we're functioning right now. That's how we're designed to function. We're designed to carry a swagger into this battle. However, we're not swaggering at all. We're distracted. Baiting Wilson. Now, this is where many of us come in. We're sort of like in that Wilson 1916 mode where we're like very susceptible. We know that we ought not to go and fight Mexico. We really don't want to. But we also don't know that we really want to fight over in Europe. We don't want to fight. And that's a dangerous place to be too because God wants to use your resource. He wants to use your strength. And yet some of us want to hog it and hold it up. 
And when we do that, then we are still susceptible to the Mexico bait, to William's plan. And that's what's going to prove true with Wilson. Until he's ready to pour himself into the right battle, he's actually going to continue to fall for the wrong one. So where where Huerta had been, that's the, the president of Mexico that was deposed. There's a whole story there that I haven't covered, well, in this message. Now there was Villa, a new enemy raised up by the United States herself. I mean, Wilson had propped up Villa. I mean, that's the reason Villa even has power. That's the reason he's even known is because of Wilson. Now he's a thorn in Wilson's side. But even that, uh, we're going to call it the stone wall of Wilson's resistance. I will not go to war against Mexico. I will not go to war against Mexico. But even that stone wall of Wilson resistance cracked under the impact of Villa's next blow. For Poncho came back. On the night of March 9, 1916, the little town of Columbus, New Mexico, was shattered out of its sleep by 400 Mexican horsemen who galloped through the streets shrieking and shooting, killed a score of residents, burned houses, sacked stores, and disappeared back over the border at dawn. All right, let me ask you, how are you doing in this situation, oh American? Are you going to fall for it? I mean, how do you not fall for it? You can't just sit by and do nothing when that happens. No one's going to feel secure along your borders. This time, no matter what the counsels of caution and policy, America had to hit back. Bitterly against every better judgment, Wilson, for the second time in his administration, found himself forced to order attack in Mexico, the one act he had wished above all things to avoid. So, out of all our presidents, he's possibly the only pacifist that we've ever had, right? That's not a normal quality for an American president. And yet he probably went to war or called war more often than any president in all of American history. I mean, he was the one that oversaw the battle between the war between America and Mexico and our involvement in World War I. Is that one of the greatest ironies you've ever heard? <clears throat> so this is called the Mexican Punitive Expedition. Uh, it's a very awkward name, right? But this is a punishment campaign. We're going to cross the borders, and we're going to hunt down Pancho Villa. That's all we're going to do, and we're going to destroy him. And we're going to prove to the American people that this will not stand. However, it is the colossal example of a distraction right here. So America is going to take, I mean, probably their best general, General John Pershing, and he's going to have his men, and they're going to go storming across the borders, and they're going to get Pancho Villa, or at least that was the intention. Where is he? He's over here. Oh, let's go over here. Oh, no, he's not over here. Wait, he's over here. This is the most humiliating thing the Americans have ever gone through. They're going to scoot around on the Mexican, uh, you know, they're trespassing basically into Mexican territory. And they're trying to do this quickly, but it's not going to happen quickly. They are distracted and they are humiliated and they're embarrassed. Our military looks ridiculous. So what just happened to all powerful America? We look dumb because we're fighting the wrong battles. So here's the summary. I'll just give it to you this way. It was a prolonged and famous fumble. <laughs> I thought that was a great way of summarizing the entire Mexican punitive campaign. 10, 20 un unnumbered times, Villa was reported dead. Yeah, we got him. Captured, run to earth, beheaded, hung by his own men, caught by Karanazistas, 
until it seemed as if his face grinned at the scorched Americans out of every cactus, only to vanish like the Cheshire cat. I thought we killed this guy. No, he's still alive. He was just spotted over here. Well, let's go get him. Wait a minute, now he's over here? This is humiliating. And this is how the devil plays us, too. If you focus on the wrong battles, you're going to scoot around and try and chase down Via for the rest of your life. Let's make sure that we use this one life we have to focus on the battles that we've been assigned. The mocking enemy. Happy to see us otherwise engaged. So we have an enemy over in Europe named Germany in this situation, which is laughing. They are laughing in their little side rooms about what is taking place as we're chasing around Via because we're doing exactly what they had planned. Berlin, that's the capital of Germany, Berlin's press was ecstatic and harking back to an old theme suggested the Japanese were secretly backing Via. So what do they whisper? It's like, oh, I think uh, the Japanese are the ones sponsoring Via. I mean, this is, and then listen to this. This is a great moment. James Gerard, the U.S. ambassador, telegraphed back to Germany, I'm sure Via's attacks are made in Germany. It's like, we know now. We're very familiar with what's going on. We just have not let the people of America know it because if they knew this, they would want to fight in Europe. And Wilson does not want to fight in Europe. And as a result, he's vulnerable because the American people keep swinging all of their weight down towards Mexico. Evidence of Germany's complicity, though in fact filtering in constantly, was kept very hush-hush in Washington because the government did not want to provide the public with additional reasons for getting into war with Germany. To Germany, it seemed that America was satisfactorily embroiled at last. At last, the years of plots and pressure and slush funds had paid off. Germany could not resist gloating. When the New York Times warned that Germany was behind Carranza's turning against us, a Berlin paper replied, listen to this, this is how bold they're becoming in Germany. A Berlin paper is actually going to declare, we consider it not worth denying that Germany is egging Mexico into war in order to prevent their export of arms to the Allies. The fact that America's profitable arms traffic with France and England will suffer through a war with Mexico is, to be sure, a consequence that will cause us no tears. And so you can see the enemy beginning to show his hand. And ironically, he feels secure in that. And just around the bend, we have something very special that's about to happen. Oh, it's good, guys. I mean, obviously you, well, maybe I shouldn't say obviously. Maybe I should hold it back. We don't know if America's going to get involved in World War I or not. <laughs> Wait and see in the next ex episode. No, it's not going to be the next episode, but it'll be in an upcoming episode because that's 2000. 2000. Which, uh, which century am I in? Uh, 1917 is going to be a critical year. We're right in 1916 here, and of course in my next message I think I go back to 1915 because I'm dealing with the European landscape at a different pace. I'm trying to just sort of catch us up and get us prepared for a telegram because that one telegram is going to shift everything. So we're going to finish with this, Ephesians 6.11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Every single one of us is very susceptible. However, when we function in Adam, in our own human strength, in our own human ingenuity as our armor, which is what you sort of see Wilson trying to do here, 
It's like he knows what is right, but he doesn't have the ability because he's not submitted to the greater purpose. And so as a result, he's fragile even in his conviction. When we put on the armor of God, it's the equivalent of having faith in Christ and being confident in his ability. And as a result, we can make decisions that truly negate the wiles of the devil. The best way to silence Germany isn't to try and fight via. The best way to deal with Germany is hit Germany in the teeth. And the same is true for many of us. We try and take our battle into skirmish territory along our borders. Instead, it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You go straight at it. You do not need to be a coward when you're dealing with the spiritual realm. You are in Christ. Where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of majesty. What's under his feet? All things. He has the name that is above all names. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. If God be for you, who can stand against you? When you know your position, you take it to the enemy. It says the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. That's an offensive maneuver. And as William Gurnall in his classic book, uh, The Christian in Complete Armor, says, God did not equip the Christian with armor for the back. He gave us weaponry. He gave us armor to march, to take territory, not to run with our tail between our legs. The devil has wiles, and he's very active. And he's likely very active in your life. And you could say, how do you know that? Because you're here. <laughs> and if you're here, that means you're pursuing more. And if you're pursuing more, the enemy's like, eh, eh, eh. He's not happy about it. Which means you're likely getting a little bonus attention. Consider it a great honor. You see, you do not need to fear the extra attention. And I know it sounds weird because you're like, uh, I don't really want extra attention. I do not want God mentioning my name with Satan. Have you ever heard that? You know, it's like, have you considered my servant Job? It's like, oh, okay, God. Okay, God, uh, let, let's get something straight. You do not need to honor me by saying that to the devil, right? And yet technically you want you want the extra attention, not for the attention itself, but because it is a signal that you are becoming dangerous to the enemy. And that is what you want to have happen inside of you. If you're living your Christian life in the right way, then you should get enemy attention. Isn't that a funny statement? However, you should not fear enemy attention because you have something greater. God has not left you an orphan vulnerable to the enemy's attention but he has given you all that you need for life and godliness. All the equipment, all the weaponry, all the armor. He has given you and supplied you with everything you need to win this battle. Every battle and ultimately the war. You are a soldier that has been constructed by Jesus Christ himself and you are designed to win. That does not mean the devil gives up. And that does not mean the devil is going to be silent. That means the devil is going to do what he can to hinder you from recognizing that and to try and stop you at every turn and to create noise at the border. 
you are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. So live with that wisdom that God has given you. Father, we need that wisdom. We need clarification in this battle. We need to understand how this works. Lord, we oftentimes feel very brittle like Wilson, very susceptible to falling once again prey to an old scheme of the enemy. But Lord, I pray that you would establish us firm and that you would remind us of why we are here and that we would pour ourselves and our energies and our resources into that. Lord, we trust you. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.